Good day everyone, you're listening to Time for Your Hobby, and this is episode 139, Typing It Old School. Kind of like a play on word from kicking it old school, but with typing, see what I did there? Anyways, I'm your host Alex, and today I have the honor to have Ian as my guest on the show. How are you doing today? I am doing decently well, I suppose. Decently well is always good. I guess decently I will well, be on the be same better, boat. Could be worse. Yeah, yeah, I'll be yeah. I'm in the same boat. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, maybe by the end of this we'll do decently even better. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. But you know what? We're going to follow the flow and hopefully it will lead us in the right direction. But today we're going to go into the topic of typewriters. But before we do that, I'm sure the listeners would love to know who is Ian? Who is Ian? Who is he? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I am a typewriter collector. I started collecting in 2012. That's when I got my first one. Uh, since then, I've made something of a name for myself in the typewriter collecting community, specifically as it relates to typewriter research and also the Royal Typewriter Company. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's wait for that base to pass by. You can edit that part out. We're in an attic here, and anytime a loud motorcycle goes by <laughs> or a car with crazy bass, you hear it. They just want to be part of the show. <laughs> they just want to be. Yeah, they do. They just they just really want to say, hey, I'm here for you. Speaking about being here for you, you know, I'm here for you right now asking all these stupid questions, but I'm sure people would like to know, where are you? In a sense, like you know, online, like where, the, where can they find you? So do you have any social media links, websites, projects, or anything at all that you would love to share? It can be related to typewriters and it can be related to, let's say, motorcycles or anything else that you have going on. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a blog. It's still up. It's not active. So there's not much of a point in that, but it's called The Daily Clipper. Uh, and that is dailyclipper.com. Uh, retroid.xyz actually i think it's dot retroid it might be a slash either one would work i have set up a number of things because i'm working actually on my own podcast and that would be uh user uh, autist pod a-u-t-i-s-t-p-o-d on reddit uh working on twitter and i will have a facebook page up for that shortly so that's where you can find me Perfect. I'll put that down below. And you know, every time I hear there's a new podcaster coming on here to talk about other stuff and they're, but they're still a podcaster. I'm like, yes, cool. More people to share their voices with the world. I'm always <laughs> pumped up about that. Uh, so yes, I'll put all those links down below so people can go check it out, show some love, show some support and just follow you on your journey. Thank you. And now today we're going to be talking about the journey of the fingers moving quickly on a typewriter, if that is considered a journey. Uh, yes, so today we're going to be talking about typewriters. I'm sure a lot of people already know what it is, but let's say I'm not discriminating about the younger generation, but for let's say the younger listeners out there who might not know what it is, mind describing what a typewriter is. A typewriter is generally a mechanical or electromechanical device used to put print on paper more or less directly from the user to the paper. There isn't generally a, a screen involved, however some do. It's, it's, it's like typing on a keyboard, but it shows up directly on the paper. It, for the younger people, that's essentially what it does. In a sense, it's kind of like a manual printer. <laughs> yes, that is actually, it's very accurate. It's a manual letterpress printer. <laughs> there you go. Some of them. Some of them are electrical. Some of them are digital. You never know. Ooh. So we're going to definitely get into, into that as well. We're going to learn a lot more about all those different types of typewriters you collect. And you were mentioning that you first got introduced to it in 2012. Mind going into a little bit more details? You didn't just find a typewriter on the side of the road and said, hey, you know what? Cool. I'll collect those. No. <laughs> I started collecting in 2012, but I was introduced to them in 2003. So I was, how old was I in 2000? I was six in 2003. So I'm a youngin myself. But... uh Someone in the family, a distant relative, I think, uh, oh, I would say like a great grandfather by marriage passed away and we had to go help out, uh, help out, you know, cleaning the estate up. And one of the things that we got to keep was this typewriter, was this portable typewriter, uh, an Underwood Finger Flight champion made in the 30s, 40s. And uh, yeah, we just took that home and I was never allowed to touch it because, oh, it's fragile or they don't make ribbons anymore, you know, what have you. So I... Uh, wasn't allowed to touch it. And it was just this, this object of desire that sat on the shelf for years and years and years. And they let me use it once for a school project where it was kind of artsy and it was creative. But, uh, I just, eventually I decided, you know, I, I want to have one that I can use. And, uh, I got one. I think that was my 15th birthday when I got one. So wait, the one in your house that you weren't allowed to use or touch, do you have it now or is it still at your, let's say it's your parents? It's still there. Oh, okay. It's still there. It, it's not mine, but it's still there. It's a, it's a family heirloom. 
And your parents won't give it to you saying, oh, well, I guess uh, Ian has a collection. They're like, no, this is the one we'll keep away. We'll taunt him. <laughs> well, I kind of dragged everyone down with me like a sinking ship. Now everyone in my family has a collection. Really? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it's okay. Yeah. I have to ask how big, if you were to calculate everybody collected together, how big is your family oh, collection? Uh, it would probably be over 300 if I'm thinking about it. Because mine, I lost count of mine at 111. So I'm betting it's about 300 total. This might be a stupid question, but any duplicates are all unique. Well, I don't, myself, I don't have very many duplicates. If I have duplicates, it's generally for a reason, like um, a parts machine, which uh, well, I think we'll get into that a, bit, a little bit later. But uh, there are some machines where they are the same model, but they are different colors or they have a different typeface. So they're still slightly different than, while they may look the same on first glance, they aren't. And so there's a lot of that too. There's just a lot of variety. And do you ever trade within the family? Say, hey, mom, I'll trade you this one for two of these ones. <laughs> uh, not, uh, I think I, tr I traded a, a German-made portable with a Russian keyboard to my father for some vintage books that were put out by Royal for Salesman. So I have done that before. Man, I, I love the connection, how the family is all into it. Were you the first one to start it or was it somebody else? And then you just actually made it a lot bigger because you did say you dragged everybody down, but it's not necessarily dragging down. You, it's, you never drag down when it's a hobby. Come on. No, no, it's, <laughs> I, I, I like the, I like the turn of phrase because it makes it seem almost inescapable. Like it was just going <laughs> to happen that I was just the straw that broke the camel's back. I'm like, oh, well, now I need these five over here. And then everyone else came, came with me. Oh my goodness. I have a really stupid question, but did, did you okay. ever try this with your family? Let's say feud your members and you have a few typewriters and people have to try to determine what that typewriter is just by the sound of it. We have not, but funny that you say that a lot of typewriters have such specific sounds that it would be, it would be pretty easy. I can think of a few models off the top of my head where I could identify them by sound. That'd be, that'd be a pretty cool game to just see the whole family just trying to figure out, oh, yes, that's a, that's a 75. Da, da, da. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think the ones that are distinctive are so distinctive that everyone would get it. But I think I will try to organize that and I'll see what happens. And uh, some of them, I would imagine the older ones have more distinct sounds than the more recent ones. So on that note. No. Oh, no. It's it's pretty much inverse. Oh. The more recent ones have much more distinctive sounds. It's weird that way, but it happens. I bet you the older ones were heavier as well, right? I could be wrong, right? No. <laughs> oh my, I know it's, nothing. Well, this is why I have track. you here. I'm asking all these questions. <laughs> yeah, there are some, some older ones that are super heavy. There are some new ones that are so heavy that... They, I don't know why they're that heavy, but they just are. And then there's some old ones that are uh, as light as five pounds, under five pounds. So there's, there's a lot of variety. And what's the heaviest one you have? Heaviest one? I, I don't put them all on, on a scale, but it's got to be over 50 pounds. Wow. It's really heavy. <laughs> it is heavy. And to a certain degree, you have to think, okay, what was there? There must have been a reason why they made it that heavy. Oh, I know why. Oh. Um, <laughs> Perfect. It's well, so that one's an electric, uh, an electric standard, and that's the standard is a special typewriter term, but uh, it's an electric standard. And because the carriage return is electrified, you don't want the machine to slowly scoot across the desk every time you return. In order for it to, to not do that, they made it super heavy. So it would just stay put. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> just to think about that, the, the amount of power of it returning, you have to make a counterweight to make it to not return. Jeez, okay. It happens with portables. It, like a manual portable, if you have one and you're typing, every time you return, the typewriter will slowly scoot. You know, if the, if the feet aren't as, grab, as, uh, as soft as they used to be, if they don't grab, they, it will slowly scoot across the table as you type i did not know that that's a that's an interesting fact that's brother is really cool it's kind of like kind of like all right i swear the typewriter was here last night now it's in the kitchen how it's like oh i started my story oh, that, here that happens. <laughs> i started my story in the living room and i just ended up in the kitchen mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh on the same note of the typewriters which is the topic of the day what is the oldest typewriter you have in your collection uh i think it's 1894 off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it's 1894. And did that one, did you buy online? Did you trade it at an auction or get it at an auction, trade it with somebody else? I just uh, asked around and another collector had one and I, and I bought it from him. It was, it was pretty, pretty easy. I would not ship one of those. I wouldn't. It's just too old and too fragile for that. 
not enough bubble wrap in the world could give you enough confidence to ship that in one piece kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's very much the case. Very much the case. Well, on the same train of thought of the trading aspect, how is the typewriting community around you? Around here, it's very, it's very lively. You generally eventually find out that there's someone nearby. It's kind of surprising. If you're in, near any metropolitan area, there will be a handful near you. That's just how it is because typewriters are everywhere. They made millions of them. Uh, they're all ending up in antique stores and garage sales and all that kind of stuff. And when you see that many of them, someone is going to say, I like those two. And then it becomes five and then it becomes 10 and then it becomes 20. And so that's just what happens. But it's a very friendly community. It's a very lively, lots of trading, lots of customization, all kinds of fun stuff, really. Then within your collection, how do you organize it in your house? Or do you have like shelves or do you store them in boxes or what's your best way of displaying them? Not all of them are on display because I have a, I'm doing a lot of research specifically with Royal. So I have to keep more than I can display. But the ones that are on display are on a shelf in a lit area where you can see them. They're not really grouped in any particular way. It's just, I want to have this one out right now. And I'll just swap something out. Now, for those that are on display, whether you swap them out or not, is there one that's like, this is the cream of the crop. This is the one that either, I don't know, a celebrity had and now I have it. Or it 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 was like used for a very important document in the past or something like that. I have a handful that are surprisingly rare that I have sought out. And not even all of those are on display because I have, I have a surprising amount of those. And it's not that they're necessarily special. There's a whole era of typewriters where most collectors aren't interested. And not a lot of them were kept around to begin with. So they are almost silently becoming this very hard to get item and nobody cares. So I have a number of those and digging through is like, oh, well, this one, I only know four more of those. That one, there's nine total, you know, and that's incredible. It really is incredible, but no one cares. And none of them have have sold between collectors. So we don't even know what they're worth. We're just looking at them going, well, we know in 20 years this might be worth something. But uh, for now, no one cares. So I have a few of those. Well, you know what? Hopefully they are in fun- they're functioning, uh, I would imagine, or some of them don't work. So actually on that note, how hard is it? for you to find replacement parts if a typewriter is broken? Because sometimes I would imagine that you would get a typewriter that is either fully functional or sometimes not fully functional, right? Well, yeah. The odds are you're going to get one that isn't in tip-top shape, uh, mechanically speaking. There's a lot of stuff going on in a typewriter. You have a lot of gears. You have a lot of levers. You have all kinds of very finely tuned operations that required, you know, certain densities of lubricant, you know, in this spot and only this much. And over time, that stuff dries up, it gums up, uh, dust gets in there and stuff stops working. And if the machine was ever dropped or it was whacked or shipped, you know, and not shipped correctly, all kinds of stuff can happen. And depending on the machine, replacement parts can either be very easy to find. You might already have a donor machine in your collection, which is uh, some of the duplicates I have are parts machines. And uh, you might have a collector nearby or someone that'll ship a part or what have you. I actually was uh, just at the post office today to get a quote to send a typewriter part to Australia for a particularly hard to get part. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing that happens. And outside of fully functioning, there's all kinds of super complicated machines like the Selectric where don't try. (laughs) You're going to have to find someone who was trained by IBM in the 70s or 80s to work on that thing. (laughs) Don't touch it. You will never get it working. All right. So now for those you do have working or you're in the process of repairing, do you ever, let's say, take some parts apart to clean them? Because I know, uh, so the one we use, the typewriter at work, and after a while, it turns yellow. This is just from light, sunlight and stuff like that. Do you ever do a whole process to just try to restore it in its original uh, image? Uh, so I, I take it you're talking like a, like a, an IBM wheel writer or something where it has a, a plastic body yeah. that slowly yellows? Yeah. Okay. There are some things you can do in terms of restoration, especially for plastic machines. But I think uh, generally that your question was more, it was more general for just typewriters, not that kind of thing specifically. Yeah, yeah just general typewriters. You try to restore okay. them in their original, like use everything you can or do everything you mm-hmm. can to restore them in their original like image. So like if it, you were to buy a brand new kind of look. Surprisingly, there isn't much of that. There, there really isn't. If it's old enough to be worth restoring, most people don't want to because they want to keep whatever 
original finish is left. If it's very common, then it's not really worth it. You're going to have to wait. You just, just, you can buy it, but just wait until you find one that's in better shape. Uh, there is a very healthy customizing field where people are like, you know what? This typewriter is nice and all, but the paint's really wrecked. I want to make this glow in the dark. And then they just make it glow in the dark. There are some things you can do. Some people are now making replacement rubber feet, for instance, and you can always send the platen off to, uh, I think it's JJ Short, and they put new rubber on it so it types like it was new. The, the impression on paper is much better. And I haven't done that yet because it's a bit expensive. But if you have one that you use regularly and it's always like this one, then it's worth it, definitely. But outside of that, there really isn't that much. Some people do decals. You can buy new decals. But the hardcore collectors of true antiques like to leave let the typewriter tell the story of its journey from then to now with all of the little scratches and dings and chips that are on it. They kind of they kind of like preserving that. Now, this is an extra tough question. So you like the story of the typewriter, where it comes from, how it was used. If you had to choose one typewriter to say this would pretty much sum up my story, like you have the biggest connection with like your favorite typewriter. I know you have said you have a few that you can, are considered your favorite, but let's say, yeah, which one speaks to you the most? Speaks to me the most. Oh, goodness Or gracious. types to you the most, I guess, in this case. <laughs> I'm not sure that I can answer that. There are just too many models to, <laughs> to work down. Goodness gracious. I don't think I can give you a satisfactory answer. It's, it's like a parent. You love them all. And also like a parent, despite what you say, you do actually like some better than the others. <laughs> but there are a few that I lust after and I could name those, but I'm not sure that I can name one that speaks to me. That's difficult. That is a good question, but I am sorry that I am boring. <laughs> no, no, you're not boring at all. What if I change the question up? This is a really weird way of changing it, but let's say you had to make an icon for your display for, let's say a website or let's say Facebook or anything like that. Which typewriter would you put? <laughs> That's, I don't know if that makes it easier. I would put a Royal 10. Ah, there you go. Why a Royal 10? Well, it's iconic and uh, it's super common. So you've probably seen pictures of it before. And it's just, you know, kind of what you think of when you think of a typewriter. A Royal 10 is very uh, archetypical, if you will, of, of, a, of a standard office typewriter. Well, you know what? We'll, t we'll take that answer. It sounds like a great answer. Okay. It was a weird way to rephrase <laughs> it. Like, what's your favorite uh, typewriter? Oh, I have no idea. What would you choose as your icon? Oh, that's easy. This one. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was a good way to do it, though. Yeah, yeah. See, this is how I think on the spot. So for you, what would you say is the best part about collecting typewriters on a personal and an emotional level? I'm not sure how real you want to get. Get as real as you want. When I got into typewriter collecting, I wasn't in the best place. And it was the community that really was attractive at the time. And I liked the typewriters. I mean, there's such a wide variety of the colors and finishes and each one feels differently. And some people say, oh, I love, let's say, Olympia's. But if I try an Olympia, I go, oh, this is garbage. I don't like it. And then so everyone has their own taste in terms of actual touch. But it was the community itself that brought me out of that place. And I've been a much happier person as a result. So I would say that is part of the question. And I actually forgot the rest of it. <laughs> well, yeah, well, that's the best thing. That's a, that's a perfect answer. The idea that you found a community that is open and sharing something that you, everybody loves and then you help each other out. It's not a competition. It's like, I have the best typewriter. There is some competition. Oh, to a certain, but I'm sure it's friendly competition. It's not like cutthroat where like somebody steals one of your keys. It's like, <laughs> well, <laughs> no, well, depends on who you're talking about because there is a very small circle of really long time collectors who would cut each other's throats. Oh no. <laughs> on a heartbeat. <laughs> no. But that's like I like I don't think I could count more than six of those that I know of off the top of my head. Everyone else, your casual collectors, your casual just uh, enthusiasts of the machine are a joy, an absolute delight. Uh, there are a handful as you have in every collecting community of people that are absolutely ruthless but they're few and far between well hopefully you don't have to interact with them too much not too much but i've <laughs> i've interacted a handful of times just enough to know for sure you're like oh that's one of them it's like okay you know what i'm gonna stay away from them because they're gonna steal they're gonna ruin something they're gonna okay no that's fair that's fair you you're in it for the community the good part of the yeah. community mm -hmm. yeah and that and i get a, a real personal thrill for uncovering new knowledge that ha has previously been lost and it's, it's an arcane, very specific field of study. I know that. 
but it's important for that community that those details be be dredged back up and preserved. And I get a, a real high, if you will, of being able to to do that. It's real fun. Actually, on that note, what if you can talk about it? What is the newest piece of information that you've learned most recently about typewriters? If we're talking about super arcane details, I noticed on a very specific model of Royal that at some point they changed this design on a ribbon cover. And I try to keep track of when these changes were. And then each machine of that model that I uh, encounter after that, I check the serial number and I check to see if it has that feature or not. So then I can narrow down exactly when that feature was introduced. And then when I'm digging through uh, through documents or trying to find anything, I can try and figure out why. But this one was it was pretty apparent why. It seems like without this part, you would damage some of the finish. And it's not an easy finish to fix on this specific machine. So it was added to preserve the finish. But I'd like to know exactly when. So I can say, oh, well, that is the earliest typewriter with that feature. That is the latest with that feature. And it was introduced in May 1930 one or something like that, you know? So yeah, that's how arcane I get is this one, these two little pieces on one, on one machine. And I'm going, yes, keep track of that. That's how detailed I get with this kind of thing. But that's perfect. You're learning, <laughs> you're, you're learning the insides and the outsides of the machine. And then you, it's, it's kind of like watching a clock operate, just like all the gears turning and operating. I'm sure if you had I don't know if it's possible, maybe it does exist, but a see-through typewriter where you can just see all the mechanics happening at, all at once. Does that exist? Yes and no. <laughs> well, yes. I would say yes. Yes. Um, Swintech made and still makes uh, clear typewriters for prisons. So those are completely clear. That way contraband doesn't get smuggled in or out. But in terms of classical typewriters, there were a number where there were very large gaps in the sides. Uh, the Underwood number five has it's a skeletal framework so you can see everything operating uh the royal 10 has glass windows in the sides so you can see stuff going on but not everything but uh in terms of completely transparent there is one and that's the swintech that i'm aware of i'm sure sharp probably made something and olympia probably made something but i know swintech did i love i love the creativity of it because you know typewriters can be just used as simple like a keyboard or just like cool do the operations but the the creativity of it like how you design it the shape the size it can be five pounds it can be 50 pounds <laughs> it can be a giant like i don't know a center block kind of a typewriter it can be very portable so it's kind of cool like the variations of it and this is not related to that but i had this question and to this day i have no idea how it works necessarily and i feel you know what you okay. might be the best uh -oh. person <laughs> So okay. at work, we use a typewriter for making yes. certain documents and it works fine. But I've noticed that you can erase and I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, well, it's not white out. That's, that would be crazy because they use mm -hmm. different paper, uh, co colored papers as well. So I'm like, okay, well, I look at it. It's just tapping on and it works on new ink and also old ink. So I'm trying to figure out how does that work? It's tapping, but what is it? Is it okay. like an eraser? You got to help me out here. This is my yeah, stupidest question. <laughs> no, no, it's actually it's actually a decent one because not a lot of people who don't do typewriters know this, but typewriters do not erase, generally speaking. Until the 1980s, typewriters did not erase. Uh, before that, you'd have to either retype the entire document or they made special, um, like a like a pencil kind of situation where you could and this is specifically for making uh, mimeograph copies. Uh, like they had a special pencil that you could fill in what you had typed and then type back on it. Uh, and then they also made these little, well, whiteout also. But then they also had these dry, like uh, rectangles of plastic with a powdery whiteout material on the other end. And you just stick that between and then hit the key. And the correction that you are seeing on the typewriter at work is very similar by the 1980s, and I know Smith Corona did this, there were two different me primary methods of doing that. One was to cover it up. So you'd have a, a cover-up correction ribbon where it would fill it in white. And that is not what you described, so that's not what they have. The other one is called a lift-off. Because it is a carbon ribbon, it's actually like a, like a carbon powder and that it's put onto the paper. If you have something sticky, you could actually stick it to that and pull the letter off. Oh. Given enough time, yeah. So if you wait five years, you're not going to really be able to pull it off. It's sunk into the paper. 
But if it's during the typing process, you hit correction, it moves back and then whacks it a few times with this with this uh, sticky liftoff ribbon and pulls it right back off the page, which is really cool. That makes so much sense. Oh, my goodness. I was like just amazed by it when I looked at it. I'm like, how is this witchcraft happening? It took them a while to figure that out. That is really cool. It is. It is. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm like, all right, this is the, like, this was the only reason I wanted you on this podcast. Just to answer that one question. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> of course I have more questions, but that oh, just, wow. that just made my day. I'm, I'm, um, oh, now I'm, I'm going to go back to work. I'm like, yeah, I know how you work now. Yeah. I understand <laughs> you. <laughs> so back to the actual hobby of yours, what was your biggest challenge when you first started your collection? Uh, knowing, finding out where to get them. Uh, and that was just because I wasn't experienced. Now I can list off like 10 places where you could possibly get one. But, uh, at the time it was finding, finding them and finding variety. My first like five, six typewriters were all Smith Corona's because that's all I could find at the time. And Smith Corona didn't turn out to be my favorite brand that turned out to be Royal. So the whole first mm, year and a quarter, I would say it was all Smith Corona's. And then, uh, then after that it was, was Royals and some other assorted machines. I would say, but that was the hardest. So that was your hardest challenge when you first started off. It doesn't sound like you sound like you have everything mastered right now, but I have to ask this question no. anyways. What is your current challenge? Current challenge is, is the research and tracking down some very specific models that are turning out to be a little bit more difficult to find than I expected. Therefore, I'm going to have to back up a little bit. I am working on a book about Royal Typewriter Company. I want to have Everything that I could possibly find, anything that anyone could possibly want to know, I want to have it in the book. So it takes a lot of research and I have to have a lot of machines on hand and I have to compare them. So some of those machines turned out to be much harder to find than I expected. Um, the Royal Forward One, the Diana is a bit difficult to find. The administrator was hard, but I did find one and not the 70s administrator because they like to reuse names. I'm talking about the mid-50s administrator that was made in Germany. The Royal Grand is an ever-elusive machine. There's only three of them known to exist, oh, and wow. one day one of them will be mine. <laughs> but that day is far off in the future. And uh, if one turns up in an antique mall, I'm on it. But uh, that one is virtually, yeah, that is the, the pinnacle of Royals, is the Royal Grand. However, there are some interesting prototypes that have shown up over the years and those are fun to examine and compare them to the finished product if i could find the 1925 royal electric prototype i would be very happy certainly but because uh, i know there were a few of those but odds are not high so uh that is the difficult part is finding new documents that contain more information that I can add to the growing library of, of knowledge and finding the machines to back that up, I would say. So you mentioned they only made three of the Royal Grand, correct? Well, they made, they made more of those, but only three have survived. Oh, three and have that's survived. that's a very key difference. Yeah. Only three so far are known to have survived. And it was right at the beginning of the company's history. It was introduced alongside their other machine. And then it was recalled very rapidly. It disappeared from the advertising. It disappeared from shelves. And no reason was ever given. And it's just a mystery. And there's a lot of little typewriter mysteries out there, like the Royal Grand. But I would love to finally answer why that went away. What was it? And <clears throat> it's going to be hard, but I will figure it out. But speaking about mysteries, have you ever unsolved any of the other mysteries for typewriters? Why either they disappeared or changed their models or did the recalls or anything like that, except for that one? I have uh, helped crack a handful. The first one by accident, this is when I first started actually researching typewriters. There is a model introduced in 1939 called the Aristocrat, and this is Royal. Uh, and it's a portable model. It is second from the top. So the top line model was the Quiet Deluxe, and the prefix on that is an A. Uh, each machine generally has a serial number that is unique to that machine, which is really handy in dating a machine. If you can get the serial number tables, you can say, okay, if it's between this number and this number, it was made this year. So in 1939, they started to really stagger them. The A model is the Quiet Deluxe. The B model was the Aristocrat, and it goes on a little bit farther. But the B model existed before the Aristocrat, but there's no name on it. 
and no one knew what it was called. So people were just calling it the proto aristocrat. And I was digging around and I was looking at old ads on eBay and I found one that described a model I'd never heard of called the Speed King. I'd seen a Speed King, but it was in the 50s. It was a completely different machine. And I knew they reused names. So I thought this is the first one. So using the picture on the ad, I asked people, okay, do you know what this is? No one said, you know, no one said that they did. So then I found one on eBay. I bought it for more than I should have paid for it. And then I got it. I checked the serial number and it was a B. And then I went to the guy who runs the typewriter database, which is a fantastic resource if you're a collector, by the way, and laid out everything. I said, here's the ad. Here's the machine. They match. That machine is called the Speed King. And that was the first time that was solved. So if you're on eBay and you see a Royal Speed King and it's this gloss black machine, that seller got that information from typewriter database and I'm the one that found it. So that is nice. And then I've also figured out a lot of Royals uh, desktop electric line because no one knew anything about those. So that was a fun, that's a fun journey. It's been real fun. That is awesome. You're like uh, a detective. It's just kind of cool. Like just think, wow, I figured it out. And if you're doing research for real old machines, it gets a lot harder and a lot more arcane. And then you have to dig into local archives in very small towns, you know, and that kind of deal to try and trace down like small time makes. And that is not my, that's not my thing. I am doing Royal. I will have to go through archives, but it's not, for example, the Alexis typewriter company, which real arcane, and it's not that kind of thing. So there are some people that deserve the title of investigative typewriter detective much more than I do, <laughs> but I try. You know what? Under my eyes, you deserve it. <laughs> you can't oh, take that you. away from me from seeing you in that image. You're the man who knows so much about typewriters. You know, you saw my biggest question of all time. How did they erase? So, you know, you're my <laughs> idol for that. Uh, but yes, I can imagine it can be pretty stressful doing the whole research process and finding the right information, cross-referencing and making sure it checks out. So on that note, has collecting typewriters ever stressed you out? And if so, what do you do to de-stress? I'd say two of the most stressful things in typewriter collecting are, no, I'll, I would say three. Three things that are stressful in typewriter collecting is you've seen a machine, for example, on eBay, you know you need it, but someone else has already put in a bid. So figuring out, okay, I got to have this machine and then having that bidding war, that's stressful. After winning it, getting it shipped to you, that is another level of stressful because there are some sellers, you can tell them everything they need to know on how to pack a typewriter properly and they just won't do it. So you're thinking, okay, this thing is not that common. Finding the parts for this would be impossible. I really hope that they follow these instructions. That is very stressful. And then there is, uh, let's see, I, I forgot the third one while I was enumerating the <laughs> second one. This is why I write things down, by the way. <laughs> this is why I have the archive. Because there's no way I'd remember all of it. But this is partially my fault as well, because I ask all these random questions. I'm like, oh, it's like, oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So those two are pretty, pretty stressful. And if it is a very rare machine, multiply, multiply that stress of shipping by three, at least. Because then you know, it's, if it's rare, it's almost guaranteed something's going to happen. And that has been my experience, is that if it's rare, something's going to happen. I'm not going to lie. I just imagine when you were in that bidding war on eBay, for, for a moment, I'm like, oh, what if he was actually bidding against your, his family? <laughs> just, that whole, happened. That happened? Yes, it did. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine who <laughs> deals typewriters, he had this really cool, very hard to get machine. There's only like 50 of them now. And I was like, I want this machine. And I just was talking about it in front of my brother. And he said, well, you know what? It's too bad because I'm going to buy it. <laughs> no. And I said, oh, no, you're not. So the last 30 seconds was us just bidding each other up. And it went up another $150. Because <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> he's such a twerp. <laughs> and, the, and the guy I was buying it from, actually, when he found out, he felt so bad. He gave me some money back. <laughs> because I would imagine it showed, does it show both your last names or is this like a hidden name? Oh no, it, it, this is eBay. So it's kind of hidden until you win. Okay. <laughs> Cause if it's saw both last names, like, are they family? Are they just going at it? It happened. It, and it happens in other large collecting families, but it happens. That, that, that's fun, but stressful at the same time. It's kind of like a fun family feud, but <laughs> 
hopefully it's, there's it's no, one of those fun family feuds yeah hopefully there's no like tension in between you guys now because of that one typewriter no 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 <laughs> we just you know we rib each other on it every so often it's like oh well you know i might have been able to get you a better christmas present this year if you hadn't bit <laughs> me up on that typewriter three years ago you know, that kind of that kind of thing that, that i like i like that a lot and for you what are some misconceptions about people who collect typewriters that all of them are writers I would say is, is the, the one that I can think of off the top of my head that all of them are writers because a lot of, especially old time collectors never write on their typewriters. They just don't. It's, uh, for them, it's the hunt and the hunt. There really is something in the hunt where you are tracking down leads and trying to get this thing. Cause Oh, this person heard that that person had it, but they sold it already. And they think it's for sale right now, actually from the person they sold it to. So the hunt is really good. And for those collectors, they're always trying to find the best example of whatever machine they're looking for. So uh, that is the kind of thing that they do. And they tend to, to put together very nice displays. But the machines are very rarely touched. There's a guy who hosts, except for this year, for obvious reasons, 2020, bad year for, for collecting groups. He hosts every year this big typewriter jamboree, if you will just at his house in West Virginia. But his house has this amazing typewriter museum in the basement. And there are machines that you will never see again. There are prototypes of machines from the 1890s in this collection. And it's just fantastic. And collectors from all over the world show up to this event. And uh, yeah, he never, he never types on any of it. He just doesn't. He's always uh, trying to find, oh, well, this Orga Pravat, I found that in this corner store in Brooklyn, you know, that kind of deal. I have gotten to type on a few of them. I asked very nicely, including that for anyone listening that already knows typewriters, I got to type on a Scholes and Glidden and also a Hanson writing ball, a replica, but it's amazing. So <laughs> it's such a good collection. But yeah, he and collectors like him don't really have the, the, the need. They don't feel the need to type on their typewriters. They just, they just have them around. So you said he and collectors like him, do you type on your typewriter? I, well, I have, well, 111 and counting. I do <laughs> on occasion. Um, I used to type with them a lot more often. Uh, if you are of the author persuasion, if you will, there is something every November called national novel writing month. And the idea is just get it out there. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just the goal is 50,000 words in a month. Just, you know, just put it up on the page. You, a lot of things are found in the editing process anyway. You just need to get it out there. And that's one way, if you are of the author persuasion, to use a typewriter regularly in a pretty awesome way. I did Nano, NaNoWriMo is what it's called in the, in the shorthand back in uh, 2013. And uh, I did hit 50, 50,000. I crossed it by not an insignificant margin because I don't know how to shut up when I get started <laughs> to tell you the truth. And uh, it was fun. It was fun. And uh, that was my favorite. I, I found out what my favorite manual desktop machine was doing that just from, you know, the hours of typing on it. But I do in other situations, especially since I'm working on the podcast, I did actually pull out a typewriter. It's actually it's actually right behind me right now, <laughs> sitting on the floor in its case. I brought one so I could do some some, you know, this needs to get out and then I'll I'll edit it and figure out what I want to say later. You know, that kind of situation. So I do. I certainly do. Others. No, some use them daily. I know Tom Hanks uses his daily. But I think I think that about answers it right there. Uh, I don't. This is a weird train of thought. But do you know a TV show called Parks and Recreation? <laughs> so there's. I know an, exactly what you're going for. <laughs> so there's an episode where Ron Swanson is like in denial. He does not like computers at all. I'm saying this to the speakers. I know you, Ian. You already know what I'm talking about. And he I've only seen the clip. I don't know the the context behind it. So yeah, I, actually, there's a GIF of it on uh, I put on Twitter right now to promote this episode. So yeah, basically, he takes out uh, his typewriter because he doesn't like computers. He doesn't trust computers. And he's like, I'm gonna type every word I know. Rectangle, America, megaphone, Monday, butthole. <laughs> so when you said fifty thousand words, I'm like, you're just not writing every single like rectangle, America, megaphone. <laughs> you're, you're writing actual no. sentences and, and ideas. <laughs> and one of the notes I have about that episode, actually, is I think he calls that typewriter the wrong model. I am quickly Googling it real quick just to get the picture up. He, I think he called it in the episode an Underwood 5. 
Yes, he calls it an Underwood 5. That is not an Underwood 5. I think it's an SX, but I, I can't say for sure because Underwood is not my brand, but that is not an Underwood 5. Rex and, Rex, uh, Parks and Rec got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> all the typewriter collectors all at once were like, that's not an Underwood 5. But they tried. Yes, it's a thought that counts. <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I know I just found that episode pretty funny. And but yeah, so now people know it's the wrong model. You know what? They should go back and re-record that scene to just get it correct. <laughs> yeah, the Underwood Five, if you count before it was called the Underwood Five, oh, 1898 to the mid twenties, and the machine that he has in the episode was made in the thirties or forties. So. Different, but I mean, they did keep the same design elements. It's clearly a descendant of the five, but it is not officially a five. See, if you were there on the show, they would have known. Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> typewriter collectors. Once you start collecting or once you start learning typewriters, every time one appears in a movie, you have to pause and try and guess what it is. Or especially if it's a modern movie set in the past, you have to say you have to guess and see, oh, OK, is that correct? Uh, have you ever watched any episodes of Mad Men? No, I have not. Well, uh, Mad Men is set in an advertising office in New York in the 60s. And I think I think it progresses from the early 60s to the late 60s as the show goes on. But in the very first uh, season, almost all of the typewriters in the office are way too new. <laughs> they correct it in the second season. And it can be kind of jarring if you're if you're binging it where you notice, oh, well, all the typewriters changed. That's because they were using Selectric 2s in the opening shots, you know, in the whole first season when the Selectric 2 came out like in the 70s. <laughs> so this is 1961. That's when the first Selectric came out and they're using Selectric 2s. But they did correct it and they had original Model 1. Uh, I think they're called Selectric 72s, which is really weird that the first model is a 72 and they used the wrong model that was made about 1972. That's funny. For the whole first season of, of, of Mad Men. But yeah, typewriter collectors love pointing that kind of thing out. And on occasion, collectors do actually get contacted by uh, movie studios. You're saying, hey, we're looking for this. That happened to us. Actually, my family, we had that happen. Uh, where they were looking for a very specific hard-to-get model for, uh, for Ready Player One, actually, if you've seen that. But there was a typewriter shop in New York that had to scrounge up a bunch of black original Selectrics for the... Third Men in Black movie, the one where they go back in time to the 60s. Yeah. So that was supplied by a typewriter shop. The typewriter in Ready Player One was probably supplied by a collector because they were calling pretty much everybody trying to find this machine. So that happens on occasion. It's it's fun. So on that note, let's say out of 10 times, how many times would, let's say, a TV show or movie get it right? Like just in some, like nine out of 10 TV shows would get the typewriter right. I'd say that's accurate. I'd say nine out of 10 times. Generally... If you are familiar with the general aesthetics of an era, it's pretty easy to go, oh, well, that one's obviously 1930s and you just pick that one up. And if you're making something set in 1938, the odds are you're going to be right. So generally, they're actually pretty accurate, I would say. But Mad Men was a very <laughs> noticeable <laughs> error because they had like 50 of these mid 70s electrics. And I just about died laughing because everything else on the show was spot on except for the typewriters in the office. It reminds me of like when it was a Game of Thrones, they had the Starbucks cup or other TV shows mm -hmm. where it's like medieval mm -hmm. age and they had like the a digital watch. <laughs> just like, yeah, that didn't yeah. exist. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it's a fun game trying to name typewriters in a like the briefly flash across the screen uh, screen. The post was really fun for that going. Oh, that's a Royal Sabre. That's a 440. That's a 470. Uh, that's an IBM Selectric. That's an IBM Executive. Uh, <laughs> you can just go on and on, especially with the post. But it, it's fun. It's a fun game. Has there ever been a typewriter you've seen on TV or a movie you could not identify, whether it was just like too short of a clip or it's just there's no information on it? I would say there have been a few instances and there are actually on typewriter social media groups that does happen where someone says, I'm watching this show and I can't figure out what this is. And it's either because the shot is very brief and it's poorly lit and the angle's not good. So and there are also machines that look very similar and from certain angles, they're almost impossible to tell apart. So then there's some debate with that. But for the most part, if you know enough typewriters, it's not a problem for the most part. But you really have to be a typewriter nerd 
for it not to be a problem more often. For the most of the typewriters you have, where do most of them come from? Most of them come from the United States. The United States was far and away the typewriter country of the world for a very long time. For a very long time. The early typewriter industry was all in the United States up until the mid-70s, actually. Most typewriter production was in the United States. And then you started having a, a bunch of Japanese machines come in, uh, like uh, like Sharp. Then Olympias even started getting made in, in Japan. So until the mid-70s, it was mostly the United States. But Germany did give us a run for our money, for sure. Crafty, crafty. And I'm sure you have a few in your collection as well, right? Yeah, one or two, I think, at this point. At least one. But there are a few machines that they definitely over-designed. If you are a Volkswagen or an Audi driver, you understand <laughs> exactly the kind of stuff they were doing. When you say over-design, as in like they added extra parts that aren't necessary or just added extra parts that made it a lot better? I would say they added extra parts and made it much more German, but that's me. The machine I'm thinking of specifically is a very early Olympia Electric. And there are some features that just don't need to be electrified. For example, margin release. You really, it's a button that pulled, you know, that flips a lever, pulls a rod, and then it tilts something. That's it. It's very simple. It's a very simple system. Not much can go wrong with that. On this Olympia, they said, we want everything to be electrified. So instead of having just a handful of links, there are now solenoids and circuitry and all kinds of stuff that did not need to be there, all of which now 50 years later is just a ticking time bomb. That stuff's going to fail and then you're going to have to find that right transistor or that right solenoid just to make that part work again. And that machine is way over-engineered. It's very German in that regard. And thankfully, they eased off. But lots of German machines do that kind of thing. It's kind of cool to see the different perspectives of different countries on how they build their machines because they make it towards how let's say society would use it or just the culture at the time. So it's kind of cool how different typewriters go along with their culture. It's and they also uh, most companies had uh, like a like a uh, oh man, I just forgot the word. This happens. I'm not that old <laughs> and I'm already forgetting words right as I hit them. Um, tiers. That's it. They had tiers. So you'd have a top of the line and a bottom of the line. So, for example, by the middle of the Great Depression in the United States, Royal was making a typewriter that was pretty much all sheet metal <laughs> for <What? laughs> that you could afford even if you were almost unemployed. So and they still made their really nice ones, but there were machines, their depression era portables is what we call them, where they just were like, OK, um, what can we get rid of? Well, we don't need a bell. We don't need a shift. We don't need a backspace. We uh, don't need margins. We don't need that. We don't need that. We don't need that. And then it's just, you know, <laughs> keys and, and rubber and that's it. <laughs> so that kind of thing happens. You know, don't need a space bar. We'll just make everything one word. <laughs> there are machines that... Uh, well, not pretty much every machine I can think of yeah. has a space bar, but some of them don't have keys, as in like a keyboard. That's pretty common on some machines. I, this is a really odd thing that just popped up in my head, but I would imagine, I could be wrong, but I would, would imagine there is no cursive typewriters. No, they're all over. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, all over. Huh. Uh, that Depression Era Portable I was just using as an example is actually italic. All of them came in italic. But uh, collecting typefaces is actually a whole, it's a whole, it's its own separate thing. There are different styles of cursive. Uh, vertical script is the most desirable because it's not as common. And then you have a regular, more flowing script like that's closer to handwriting. There's one that I've seen an ad for. It's not cursive, but it's, it's patterned after a handwriting that no one has seen yet. No one has seen it on a machine. So that one is hitherto undiscovered. There's just an ad that offers it. I think it's called Lipman Type, and it was offered on a, an early 30s Royal Portable. But then there are also machines that uh, if you got an executive or a, a business version of it could have specific type styles that were not offered elsewhere. And a lot of those haven't turned up yet. So there's there are Art Deco typefaces. There's cursive typefaces. There's um, Fracture. So uh, are you familiar with the Hindenburg? I, I promise this is connected. So you know that how they that special German script that they put Hindenburg in on the side of the Zeppelin, you can buy typewriters with that typeface. There's a Selectric ball with a smiley face, emoji, actually, as it, they didn't call it that then, but it's an emoji now. They, there's actually a smiley face emoji on a Selectric ball. Uh, so typeface collecting is a big field. There's uh, like 
oriental style. So it looks like uh, it looks like what you'd have on a sign at a at a restaurant, you know. So you can get all kinds of typefaces, and there's almost infinite variety. But a lot of them are a bit more difficult to find, and some of them become almost a religion-like obsession. It took me two years to track down a very specific typeface, and the lengths I went to were pretty crazy. But a lot of other people do that same thing for that typeface, so it happens. <laughs> now, hopefully this is on the same train of thought, but on average, how many keys does a typewriter have? Let's say when, this is including symbols that are common to use. And what are some of the typewriters you have with the most amount of keys? Because there's a lot of symbols that you couldn't necessarily fit. Because I know like with keyboards to replace, because instead of just pressing five and then the money sign, you would have pressed shift and well, I guess it's four here, shift and four. So how many keys? Because you can't, I don't, I can't imagine you can do that on a typewriter where you hold shift and press four or unless you can, I don't know anything. This is why oh, I yeah, have you, you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly how that works. Shift actually comes from typewriters uh, on a, on a computer keyboard. It actually comes from typewriters. I think typewriter keyboards are not rated by keys. They are rated by characters. And I think they go up to 86, I think off the top 86 characters, which is yeah, 43 keys. But uh, some have fewer, so your lower-end portables will have very few extra characters, and those might be, hmm, like 82 characters. I'm, I'm thinking, because I have notes about that kind of thing, but they're not with me right now, just because of the situation I'm in. But I think they go up to 88 characters, which would be 44 keys. I think that's pretty much, unless you're talking about a Chinese typewriter or a Japanese typewriter, those are absolutely insane. Those can have hundreds of keys. So yeah, if, if you're not talking about one of those, yeah, generally somewhere around between 82 and 80, 86 characters. You know what? Manageable. I would take some time to learn how to use it, but you know what? I feel like if you know how to use, I, once again, this is stupid. If you know how to use a keyboard, you should pretty much know how to use a typewriter and just the basic instincts of how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because they count a capital A and a lowercase a is two separate characters. So it's, it's not like there's a plus some other weird character. There are some machines like that. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, for the most part, the computer keyboard was designed to be as intuitive for a typewriter secretary to use as possible. So that's why a lot of things from electric typewriters held over onto computer keyboards. And it's interesting when people try to reinvent the keyboard, it doesn't really work. <laughs> it's just like, well, I mean, they first started with typewriters, so it's been going on forever. And the typewriters, uh, like layout has been working out for over a century now, even longer. And mm -hmm. they're like, you know what? Why, why change if it's not broken? Yeah. I mean, within the first 20 years of typewriters, people were coming up with new keyboard layouts. Uh, some typewriters don't have keyboards. So, I mean, it, there was a wide variety. Touch typing didn't exist until the turn of the century. So there were a lot of keyboards that were half moon shaped where they wrapped around the typewriter. And you can't touch type with that at all because it was still just hunting and pecking. And that was fine. Touch typing didn't exist. It wasn't important. I am learning so much from this. But actually, and that's a perfect segue to my next question. What has collecting typewriters taught you in life? In almost all situations, there will be another one. Don't get your panties in a bunch over <laughs> like a specific machine because there's going to be another one. With some very, very specific exceptions, there's going to be another one. Don't worry. Don't get too stressed out about it. There's also a lot that you can learn about space management and knowing when to let things go, I would say. Lessons that I will admit I am still working on actually <laughs> learning and committing to memory. But there are things like that. And also there's interpersonal skills and you know, that kind of situation. Um, typewriter collecting is very laid back and it makes it very easy to make friends, I would say. So I also learned how to make friends. <laughs> hey, there <laughs> so, you go. There you go. Except for those six, those th six people who are just yeah, out well, for your throat. Yeah. <laughs> One of them was my friend and then oh, he pulled a move. Oh, this is like a drama. Friend. Yeah. Well, that's part of a larger, much more interesting story, but I'm not sure if you want to go there. <laughs> you know what? Uh, big long story short, the most of the people in the community are nice, friendly, and welcoming. 
And I've learned this today from Ian. He is nice, friendly, and very welcoming, and he answered all my stupid questions, especially the dumb ones. Well, that's the implication of stupid is dumb. Anyways, yes. <laughs> so, uh, I've asked this question at the beginning of the episode, but I'll ask it again at the end. Do you have any social media links, websites, or projects you're working on that you would love people to come check out and show some love? The uh, projects I'm working on, I'm actually working on starting my own podcast called The Resident Autist, A-U-T-I-S-T. And it's going to be, you know, a general mixed bag history show. Uh, I do some pretty serious research. Uh, I'm going to do the USS Indianapolis, and I've read seven books for that. So I'm pretty serious about it. Uh, there is a website for that, residenceautist.com. It's a landing. It's just a, a regular landing page. It's parked right now. The show is also on Reddit at user autist pod, A-U-T-I-S-T-P-O-D. Uh, that is the same on Twitter, and I will be publishing a Facebook page at that same uh, location. And I think that's about it for that. Yeah, I think that's it. Perfect. I'll put all that down below so people can go show some love, you know, just watch your journey and learn more about typewriters, learn more about you, Ian, as a person, a wonderful, wonderful, patient human to just tolerate all this time, <laughs> me asking questions, and I cannot thank you enough. And now for the last question, probably it's going to be... Because I've asked so many stupid questions. You'd be like, you know what, Alex? Yeah, now it's my turn to ask you a stupid question. Uh, do you have any questions <laughs> for me about typewriters? For you? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Put me on the spot. If your job was getting rid of their typewriter, would you be interested in maybe giving it a home? So uh, I would be interested in giving it a home, but they tend to collect the typewriters that are broken. Because if we go upstairs, there's still some mm. that are from like the 70s and the 50s that are still there. Oh, so, well, I don't think they're oh, going to get rid of them anytime soon. We had a thing like that happen. Yeah, we were gifted a bunch of machines from a land title agency that had collected machines as they broke down. We we're like, yeah, we can fix those. Thanks. Yeah, I don't think they have intentions to fix it, but it's just they're like, oh, well. no, no, they didn't either. <laughs> but like, I, I remember I, I would want to try to describe it. It was like a big red one. It was just like, it looked like a giant jelly bean per se. That's a Selectric. I'm pretty sure that's a Selectric Model 1. There, see, like I just said red jelly bean. You're like, yep, Alex, I know what that is. <laughs> I can I can send you a picture and you can get back to me and tell me <laughs> if that's what it is. Well, what I was going to do the next time I'm up there, I'm going to go take a picture of it and then send it to you. So he was like, hey, look what I found. Oh. <laughs> and you'd be like, send it, send it. I need it. <laughs> maybe, 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 maybe I might be able to. Yeah, we'll see. It's jelly. It has like a like kind of a, a swoopy thing going on around the keyboard, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm pretty sure, <laughs> pretty sure that's electric, my dude. You know what? I'm impressed that you were able to get it right off the bat with my bad description. You know, red jelly bean. It's like yes, yep. Somebody's already asked you that before. <laughs> to go behind the scenes, I just sent him a picture of one over our little chat thing. <laughs> Does that look like it? Um, I'm looking at it now. Yes and no. Yes and oh. So, but it looks so. It looks like it was. Think of it like a, a marshmallow, kind of like a balloon. It was like rounder. Kind of looks like it belongs in the seventies, like that seventies vibe. So it was less. Wow, I was gonna say more friendly looking, but it was more round, kind of like. Yeah, I'm really bad at describing it. Round. I'm putting you on the spot right now. This is this is gonna bug me now. If it isn't a Selectric seventy two. Looks like a jelly bean, friendly and round. <laughs> could be a facet. Could be no, not a Remington, not by then. Oh, that's going to bother me. Well, we're going to have to figure that out after the show is over, and you can update everyone to see if we finally figured it out or not. You know what I'll do if I go up there anytime soon? I'll take a picture of it, send it to you, but also the day we're going to promote. Your episode a week before coming out, I'll put that picture oh. in there. So we'll be like, hey, look, this is the typewriter we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's such a wide variety of machines that with with some very specific notable exceptions, it can be difficult just by hearing a vague description, you know, what it is. From a complete idiot. Um, yeah, like me. <laughs> well, no, you're not a complete idiot. You're not a complete idiot. But it, there's there's such a variety I'm, it might be an Olivetti. Olivetti had this thing with kind of swoopy things for a while there. Oh man. <laughs> if you're in Canada, it could be a console actually. Yeah. Oh. I say, yeah, like I'm oh, an expert. Man. Like, yeah, yeah, it could be that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's quite plausible. Yes. <laughs> it's possible. So yeah, there you have it. Another body with a hobby. Thank you so much, Ian, for just coming on the show and being patient with me, with even at the end, just describing a red jelly bean with le uh, letters <laughs> on it. I cannot thank you enough. Um, 
If you guys want to learn more about Ian, you should go check him out. I'll put all the links down below so it'll be very easy to find. And if you'd like to be on my podcast or have any questions at all, you can send me an email at timefuryourhobby at gmail.com. And of course, if you want to show some support, I'll accept reviews. Reviews are good, good or bad. You know, on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, on a typewriter, just type it up, review, throw it away. I don't care. I know, well, I don't know. You do whatever you want. Reviews are good, optional. And if you want to show some more support, I also sell merchandise on Redbubble and I also have a Patreon. Once again, these are optional. You don't have to do it to enjoy the podcast, but it's there. So once again, thank you so much, Ian. Oh, thank you. It was a delight. So until the next episode, make some time for your hobby. Take care.